Welcome back, journeyers, to another episode of Read Keeper's Journey. Okay, so this is the second to last episode. Uh, my writing went a little long. Uh, recording took longer than I expected. And now, this is it. But, because I love you, and you've been listening to me for like half a year now, I'm gonna go ahead and post the final episode tomorrow, as soon as I'm done with it and gets all cleaned up and we're good to go. So... Just hang in there, man. We can do it. So where we left off in the story was that they left Lactock Mountain. We got some clarity at what saved them in the forest that one night. It was the Dark Elves. And now um, the last thing we saw was these giant hairy creatures surrounding them. Now, back to the story. Chapter 58 Heather eyed the tall, hairy creatures. They had surfaced out of the sea of grass while Steve ranted about the rain. It didn't seem possible for things of that size to hide so close, and she wondered how many of them the group had passed as they rode with their heads down, lost in their own dark and wet thoughts. Each stood between seven and eight feet tall, were slim and covered in thick hair that ranged from dark brown to black, making them look like a cross between humans and apes. Heather's eyes went back and forth between Bear and the creatures, seeing the only difference between the two was that her friend wore clothes. The ape-men didn't wear a stitch of clothing. The tall figures neither spoke nor moved, and Heather silently wished for Michael to say something. Whether he admitted it or not, his role of the group had evolved into leader, and with Kin's betrayal, the others looked more to him than ever. Even Zoe deferred to him now, well... Deferred may be too strong a word. At least she had lost the Mrs. Big Britches attitude. Steve was the one who broke the silence, undaunted by the ape men's mysterious appearance. Steve didn't lose his cool easily. Never, in fact, and Heather watched his exasperation with a mixture of amusement and mild embarrassment. Well, Steve threw up his hands. Are you going to say something or just watch us float away in the rain? As one, the ape men turned northwest and began walking in slow, long strides, oblivious to the rain. Heather looked at Michael, as did everyone else. He shrugged, clicked his mouth, and gently urged his horse after them. Bear helped Steve back into his saddle, something that Heather intentionally paid no attention to. Steve had no problem with his height. It was another thing she loved about him, self-acceptance without self-glorification, but she knew how it rankled him to ask for help. Rain continued to pelt them, obscuring their view and working its way into everything as they followed the ape-men. Heather couldn't blame Steve for his outburst. She'd been on the verge of screaming until the creatures appeared, startling away her frustration. People often said that they loved the rain, but what they really loved was the feeling of being protected from it, cuddled up and warm and cozy as the rain poured outside. Heather wiped away the rainwater from her face for the millionth time and rubbed her bluish, wrinkled hands together hoping the ape men were leading them to shelter. The group plodded along for about an hour. As they followed, the creatures drifted off one by one, disappearing from the main group into the downpour. By the time a sprawling coastal live oak came into view, only one remained. It neither looked back nor to the side, but trudged forward towards the tree. Upon reaching the enormous tree, the last remaining ape man turned back to look at them and then dipped his head beneath the low-hanging branches and entered. 
Without hesitation, Michael led the group beneath the protection of the oak. The steady pounding of rain against Heather's hood that drowned out all other sounds disappeared and became a pitter-patter of raindrops deflected by leaves high above. The branches spread out, long and wide from the ancient and gnarled oak, making a shelter that spanned a good fifty feet across, with the first branch nearly twenty feet from the ground and thick enough to be its own tree. The space was swept clear, and most importantly, dry, the air filled with a rich, earthy smell. The sound of sighs and grunts coming from the group as they wrung out their clothes made their relief almost palpable. Callista, Zoe, and Stacy each took from their packs two fist-sized, egg-shaped rocks and placed them in the middle of a small encircling of stones set in the center of another, larger set of flat stones meant to sit on. While the others shook off the rain and changed into somewhat drier clothes, their giant guide disappeared back into the rain. The girls' rocks began to cast a faint green light deep in their core and grew brighter as the three continued to hum and coax the heat and light from the stones. The others gathered round, drier and in new clothes, but still spotted with dampness as a testament that not even their oiled packs could keep the rain at bay. Heather looked at the pile of glowing rocks with hunger and sat on one of the surrounding stones, hands held out, desperate to grasp some heat. She looked at her piebald and promised to take care of it once she thawed out, but guilt pushed her to her feet, and she started to attend to the poor, soaked animal. Drier and warmer, but unable to shake the grimness that had sunken into their bones, they munched on hard bread and dried meat as they stared at the now blazing stones like druids trying to determine what the future held. What were those things? Steve asked. Seema? Callista said. They are the Lestragon, Stacy said. The quiet ones. They used to be killers, like everybody was scared of them, but they changed. This tree is called the Arini? She glanced up at Callista, who smiled and nodded. The seed of Arini was given to them by our mother when the Lestrogan found peace within themselves and Gaia. Our mother? Michael said, continuing to stare at the rocks, his voice flat. What are you mad at? You don't even call her mom. Michael looked up. You're going home, Stacy. Just remember that. Well, maybe, maybe I won't. Then why are we even here? Michael stood. Everything I've been doing is to get you back home. Oh, for me, huh? Is that why you almost died going into that mountain? Stacy stared at Zoe, who sat next to Michael. What would have happened to me if you had died? Ever think of that? Stacy stood, face red. You bailed on me because of her. Sima, Callista said. For a moment, Stacy looked like she was going to say more, hands clenched at her side, jaw jutting out. Instead, she dropped into her seat with a sullen look and muttered something that Heather didn't catch. Another time and place, little sister, Callista said. Right now we have a guest. Please, Lestrogan, come, warm yourself. A lone ape-man stood a few paces away from the campsite, silent and immobile, and Heather couldn't be sure if it hadn't been there the entire time, invisible in its stillness. It gave a slow nod and entered into the ring, taking a seat, neither hurried nor hesitant. It sat and stared at the glowing Metaf rocks, the green light bathing its face. It does look like an ape-man, Heather thought. Its face was covered in hair, but for the cheeks and the mouth, and it had a thick ridge bone above its eyes. Its face was rich with age, 
Lines and crevices spoke of many years in the weather, and the hair on its shoulder and back had turned silver. With a slow and methodical turn of its head, it looked her in the eyes. Heather's first inclination was to look away, embarrassed that she was staring, but the Lestrogan's eyes showed no insult or challenge. It simply looked at her, like a person looks at an infant without any self-consciousness. The look reminded Heather of Salsus, the stoic slave, that spent a lifetime learning and perfecting the feeling of contentment. Thank you, tree sister. It said in a soft, deep voice, revealing two sets of long fangs. Thank you for your shelter, earth brother, Zoe answered. We are honored by your presence. I best speak your words. It answered without a hint of unease, but simply stating a fact. Long time. Long time since man. Much sorrow. Much has changed, Earth Brother, Callista said. You have changed. Yes, much change. It looked at all of them, slowly taking its time to examine each of them. We sorry. We all change, Michael said, almost to himself, staring at the glowing rocks. We all evolve, hopefully into something better than what we were. He looked up at the creature and smiled. No fear. Much forgiveness. The quiet held for a time, filled only with the patter of rain on the leaves far above and the occasional drip from a raindrop that made it through the canopy to splash on the dry earth. The Lestrogan stood and looked at them again, making a humph, humph sound as it nodded to itself. Is much good. Much thanks. It turned and walked from under the canopy and was enveloped by the night. That was a good thing you did, Reedkeeper, Zoe said after a time, touching his leg lightly. She looked up quickly, embarrassed, and then left it on his leg, almost as an act of defiance. The Lestrogan used to eat men, mostly children. They would steal them away in the night, and they were once a ferocious race, even to themselves. But something changed in them, and they became the quiet ones. They reconciled with us, and the Hyperboreans, and the Lectoc, but it was after man had gone, and they have carried the weight of their guilt for ages. Men used to live here? Steve asked. Men lived everywhere. They covered Gaia, but the Lestrogan decimated him in these lands. What Michael has done was to relieve them of the guilt that the race has carried for far too long. We didn't even get his name, Heather said. The Lestrogan have no names, Stacy said. Their actions carry their names. And being unforgiven, are not even having the chance to ask for forgiveness? Michael trailed off. Yes, Zoe answered. It was their greatest burden to carry such shame. A thrumming crawled into Heather's legs, a deep, low vibration traveling along the ground and moving into her chest before it reached her ears. The sound surrounded them and developed into a slow, undulating melody that spoke of remembrance, regret, and comfort. Heather listened, lulled into a warm peace as she held Steve's hand and stared at nothing, thinking of her own name and her actions and the shame that stained her. But that shame was placed on her. It wasn't of her making. 
then how could it ever be her fault? There was nothing she could do to prevent it. And suddenly, the reasoning stood out. She blamed herself for it. Someone had to pay the price, and being so young, she couldn't make him pay. So she punished herself, inwardly, stealing her own joy as she grieved for something she did not understand, accusing herself for surviving, for letting it happen. She saw the trap that the Lestrogan created for themselves, thinking that forgiveness could only be granted by the one wronged, and when that one was no more, then where was forgiveness? Heather understood now, forgiveness must be found within oneself. If not treated, the things that led to repentance, like regret and sorrow, ended up eroding the soul, locking it in a perpetual loop of self-loathing. A person who repented and refused to forgive themselves ended up trapping themselves in a bubble of shame, forever gnawing on their own anger and grief. Lost in her own thoughts, Heather didn't know how much time had passed when Steve gently pulled her to her feet and led her to their tent. There was so much she wanted to say to him, to explain what was going on inside her. It didn't necessarily feel like a weight had been lifted, more like a break in a link of a chain that she had entangled herself in, but she felt it was too soon to talk about it, and wasn't sure she wanted to lay everything she'd been thinking at Steve's feet. Instead, she pulled him close. They held each other, wrapping their arms around one another as the blankets wrapped around them as they faded off to sleep. They woke to a pile of fruits and vegetables. Heather ate her fill, and possibly a little more, relishing in the unexpected and lavish meal. Well, lavish compared to what they'd been eating for over a week. At this point in the journey, popcorn sounded like something magical and junk food a myth from a long-forgotten age. She promised herself when she got home to lock herself in her room with gallons of ice cream, laying on her bed and listening to her records for at least a week. Her horse, Niles, munched on a white carrot, ears flicking thankfully for the treat as she ate just one more apple. The group loaded up and began tearing down the camp with well-rehearsed efficiency. They cleared and cleaned the site, mounted and rode out from under the tree with no sign of their hosts. Sometime in the night, the weather finally broke and the sun shone bright and cheerful with the fields glistening in the morning light. They headed west, following the angling down of the hillsides, passing through thickets of trees that sprouted in long swaths of now green grass. Birds filled the air with their shrill notes, welcoming the spring and praising the sunshine. Heather knew how they felt. The time was drawing near, and she couldn't help but face it with the fearful anticipation. She could be home in a day, or dead. Either was likely, and the feeling reminded her of a drawing she had won as a child. She desperately prayed that her name would not be drawn for the third place, and then twice as hard to avoid second place. But when she realized that the grand prize was her only chance left to win, panic struck her. She gripped her mom's hand, burying her face into her shoulder. Her name was called, and she won. But Heather never forgot the feeling of hope and fear mingling together to make an emotion she could not name. They camped one last night in the land of the Lestragon. Zoe told him that the coast and the castle were less than a day's ride, and that she doubted there would be a safe place to camp in the defiled land of the Gigantus. They ate well again that night, finishing off the stores provided by the ape men. They joked and laughed under a brilliant, star-filled sky, 
with Steve regaling them with stories of his and Michael's exploits of their youth. Heather laughed until her sides hurt about the time the two were short a few cents to see a movie. Tears fell from his eyes as he described how they borrowed the much-needed 35 cents from a wishing well using chewing gum attached to a stick and the resulting flight from a furious priest. While neither boys could recall the title of the movie, they both agreed that it was money well spent, and each confessed, to the other's surprise, that they had returned later to pay back the debt. Their conversations remained light and jovial, but Heather noticed that all the stories lacked one thing, kin. She also noted that no one mentioned the stench of decay that slithered through the air this close to the gigantic border. They finally turned in, each trying to find rest as the finality of their journey crept towards them. Chapter 59 Michael woke before the others. He slipped from Zoe's arms and stepped into the morning dew, opting to dress in the cold rather than wake her. He chose a small outcropping of rock to sit on as a rising sun spread warmth on his back as it tried but failed to bring light to the hills in the distance. The hills where the gigantus used to roam. There the land seemed to suck the brightness away, spreading darkness over it, and every so often a whiff of something foul crossed his nose, testifying to the sickness that infested the earth. He could feel it too, the rot, even point to it with his eyes closed. It pressed on his consciousness like a festering boil. Bear, now as hairy as his name indicated, approached and stood beside him, silent and calm as his ape-like counterparts. You okay? Michael asked. Bear nodded, slowly, and made that humph hump sound that the other Lystragon had made. Yes, ready for home, if home comes. He was still bare, and Michael could see his friend's feature underneath all that dark brown hair and thick brow ridge, like an impression left on paper, obvious and telling if someone looked hard enough. Michael knew he'd changed too, and not just outwardly like his ears or his night vision. He was no longer the boy who arrived here. How long ago? Two months? He had lost track. He looked at his hands, now calloused, and his forearms that looked carved from wood, sculpted from hours of sword training. He was surprised to learn that biceps were mostly for show. The real strength in battle depended on the lower arm. He smiled to himself. Zoe liked his forearms. As if summoned, Zoe leaned against his back, stealing his sunlight, but replacing it with her own soft warmth. One of her hands snuck around his waist and rested on his forearm. Bear stepped away, silently, leaving them alone. She slipped away, too, after the others began to stir. Her murmurs drifted back to him as she brought the rocks back to life. The finality of the coming day laid heavy on his mind. One way or the other, nothing would ever be the same. Of course, everything had changed when he leapt through the portal the first time, escaping the fiery canth. But that was done without thought. Now there was too much time to think, and it spurred its desire just to be done with it. He closed his eyes, and the world fell away. The familiar ring of a hammer welcomed him as he entered the smithy's shop. Welcome, Michael, the large man said, giving the metal a final shaping blow before dipping it into a bucket of oil. The metal let out a squelching noise in protest to the sudden cooling, but did not crack. The smithy let out a breath of relief and tension that Michael hadn't noticed before. No matter how many times I do that, he trailed off. You never really know if the metal will shatter at the first tempering. 
Michael understood. The time had also come to test his mettle. Most newcomers think the harder, the better, the smithy said, wiping the sweat from his face and watching the metal cool. And that's true, depending on the tool. A hammer? A hammer should be hard. Its only job is to strike. But a blade, a blade needs to be supple, hard enough to cut and deflect, but with enough flex to bend. Michael nodded. Thank you. Thank you for the advice and helping me with these. He indicated the cuts on his face. You're a good man, Michael, and I have faith that you'll sort this all out. The smithy said, and Michael thought it might be the best compliment he had ever received. Michael opened his eyes, the pressure that had been building behind him melting away as he joined his friends for breakfast. They rode in silence, enjoying the sunlight and preparing for the battle to come as they followed the gentle slope of the land leading down to the sea. The ocean was visible, a bright white bar of water reflecting the sun, but the fresh sea air was denied them, the fetid stink of the land growing stronger with each mile. They paused for lunch near the border, a shift in the wind giving them relief from the smell as they tried to eat. They only saw the Lestrigon once, just before they crossed the border, which was marked by a definitive line of death cutting across the land. They looked back. None of them eager to proceed and spied the creatures lining the hills behind them. The ape-men raised one hand in unison, turned, and disappeared into the landscape. Michael exchanged looks with his friends and then gently urged the horse forward. Their mounts wickered nervously as they touched the black earth. Bear growled in revulsion, sounding like a Rottweiler the size of a horse, marking their entrance into the defiled land of the Gigantus. Huh, Steve said after a while. Hey, Mikey, how long do you think we've been here? Over a month? Michael's eyes scanned the landscape, just waiting for something to jump out at them. But after an hour, nothing had happened. The landscape was completely devoid of life. Except for the growing line of water, all Michael could see was rotten vegetation and scorched earth. Yeah, a little over a month. Michael's head snapped up in realization. Hey, happy birthday! Yep, Steve trotted up beside him, his legs bouncing off the sides of his horse, his feet too short to reach the stirrups. I'm officially an adult. What is it? Michael and Heather both jerked their reins simultaneously, rearing their horses back. He felt the power build before them, and several canth formed in front of the group. As the flaming dogs circled and surrounded them, one stepped forward, facing Heather. You have come to me. The woman with the eyes voice said through the flaming maw, such sweet flesh for... Leave me alone, Heather yelled, rage painting her face. Michael felt another surge of power, but from Heather, who shone like the sun. I said, go! Heather's voice boomed, deep with hate. The hellhound screamed, a combination of the woman's voice and that of a beaten dog, a shrill horrible whine that was cut short by a bolt of lightning striking from the clear sky. It blinded Michael and raised the hair on his body. When he regained his senses, a small crater smoldered where one of the canth had stood. The others had melted into the ground, fleeing the wrath of the young woman. Heather wobbled in her saddle, then turned her head and retched noisily. So much for the element of surprise, Steve said as he retrieved a wineskin and handed it to her. She swished it in her mouth, and spat before taking a long drink. They had to know it, she said to the air, wiping her mouth. 
I thought I knew what evil was, but, but that. She took another pull from the wineskin and handed it back to Steve. Let's get this over with, she said, kicking her horse into a trot, eyes straight ahead. The canth did not return, nor were they accosted by anything as they passed the remains of the gigantus. They rode by encampments long abandoned and groves of wood long forgotten, planted for timber to build ships. Nothing seemed built to last, witnessing to the nomadic nature of the seafaring giants. Nothing but the castle, a massive stone monument that spoke of the size and scope of the gigantus ingenuity. The group pressed on, ants crawling toward an unknown fate. One lone flaming dog smoldered on its haunches at the cavernous entrance to the castle. As they approached, it stood and walked into the structure, carefully keeping its distance, but frequently looking back to make sure they followed. The immensity of the place dwarfed them, feeling small even on their horses who made loud clip-clop sounds in the stone as they rode throughout the hallways and chambers. As they followed the hellish creature, it leaving scorched paw marks in its wake and reeking of sulfur, Michael continued to fret over the plan, if he could call it that. It basically boiled down to distracting the unthing to give time for Callista and Zoe to hit it with an arrow. It was a child's plan, but they couldn't think of anything else to do. They had come to the lair to attack it and hoped that they came before it was ready. Michael had pressed Steve over lunch about their lack of a plan, where Steve replied, I'm a planner when I get there. And now, as they can't stop before the two huge stone doors, Michael knew the time had come, and nothing he could have done or planned would have made any difference as the door swung open, showing the abomination that had brought them to this world. That's all for this week. Nope, not this week. <laughs> That's all for this episode. Tomorrow, journeyers. <laughs> Tomorrow we get to find out the fate of the kids. Until then... Thank you for listening and be good to one another. <laughs>